Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Judges is one of the most violent and bloody books in the Bible. It is not a moral manual or a story about role models, but rather a tragic narrative about Israel's moral corruption and God's continued commitment to saving his people. The tragedy here lies in the overwhelming corruption and depravity of our human condition. Despite being loved and sought after by the king of all kings, Israel's cycle of rebellion remains unbroken. Israel rebels, God allows them to be conquered and oppressed. Israel cries out and repents, God sends a judge to deliver them. There would be an era of peace, but eventually Israel would sin and the cycle would start over. This is the rhythm of judges. God has called his people to be a holy people. And instead of remaining faithful to the law and showing all the other nations who God is and what he is like, they become no different from those who dishonor God. They did what was right in their own eyes. As time goes on, these judges, or rulers of the people, become more and more corrupt. When we define what is good, we hit rock bottom. The book ends with a phrase that is repeated four times. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They have no king. Nobody to unite them and bring them out of their cycle of corruption. They need to be rescued. They need a king who can rescue them from themselves. The book of Judges not only points to King David, but points to our ultimate king. The one who can rescue us fully, Jesus. My name is Ronnie. I'm one of the pastors here at Gospel Community Church, and it's my privilege and honor to bring you God's word today. I wanted to say a uh, real quick shout out to mothers everywhere. Happy Mother's Day. And uh, I, for fear of asking mothers to do anything more than they've already done, I don't, don't want to ask you to stand up, but can we just give a round of applause for moms everywhere? Yeah. And thank you to my, my beautiful and lovely wife, who's the mother of four. And uh, what, about four months ago, it was four under four. So pray for her. Um, Mother's Day is a difficult day for some. I actually didn't grow up with a mom. Uh, she, she was an alcoholic and kind of very absent. So for some people, it's difficult. Some people have lost their moms. And so just keep mothers in your, in your prayers today. They do a very, very important work and, and job in raising up and building future uh, soldiers to go out and uh, claim hearts for Christ and, and share the good news of the gospel. And it's a very difficult and sometimes very unrewarding task, it seems. I know my four children are super ungrateful sometimes, so I, moms need a lot of praise. They do a good work, and as someone who didn't, wasn't raised with one, um, you are important. And, and I, I noticed that there was something missing growing up, so mothers are very important. So we're, we're picking up in a series. We've been going through the book of Judges. This series is entitled, Trust Me, I Know I'm Right. And it's intentionally misspelled because this is something that we see all throughout human history, but specifically in the book of Judges, people oftentimes are very 
arrogant with the way they live or, or the things that they decide to do, thinking that they know what is right in their own eyes. I'm only 31 years old. How arrogant would it be for me to ignore the collective wisdom of human history? But even so much more to turn a blind eye to what the sovereign and all-knowing God of the universe has given me in his word to just completely ignore that and abandon it and think I know best. And I, I still remember being a teenager. Being a teenager is one of the worst things I remember and I reflect back on that. I feel like that's one of the times in your life where you think you know more than, more than anything. And if I, could, if I was successful in raising my kids, I, I feel like in the teenage years, they would, they would understand that one thing, that they, they don't quite have it all together or know what is best because I still remember just thinking how stupid my dad was or stupid the generations before me was and how they had got this wrong and that wrong. And it's, and it's crazy that you could just be in this fog and this delusion and going about and causing all these problems, which I did as a teenager. And the people of Israel are doing the same thing. God had rescued them. He had given them his law and they had completely forgot and abandoned them. And it got them in a whole lot of trouble, some of which we'll see in the text today. So we're picking up where Rick left off last week in Judges 5. He read uh, Judges 4, and this is almost going to be a retelling of chapter 4 because all of chapter 5 is a song of Deborah and Barak, and it's looking back on exactly what just happened. So we're, kinda, we're going to kind of rehash what happened last week, but it, it, with a little bit of a twist. It, it is a little different. I won't read the whole thing starting out. It's a very long passage, but we will read the whole thing together. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Judges 5. We'll walk through the text together. The overall message of the text is that God is the one who saves. We see that in the song. We see that in what happened prior to the song. If I was to give you three points, it would be this. The song covers many, many things, and it's kind of broken down in many different verses. But the three big things is it honors God and those who were faithful to him throughout the song. It retells and encourages retelling of the story of what God had done, and it exposes the wickedness of the Canaanites and shows us how God will treat his enemies and his friends. It does those three things. So we'll pray, and then we'll go through the passage together. Heavenly Father, thank you again for mothers. Uh, your word tells us that we should honor our mothers, and I pray that we would do this today. I pray this, that we would do this every day, for better or for worse, you gave us mothers who gave us life, and we thank you for that, God. We pray as we read this text that it would shape and transform our lives, that this wouldn't just be something we sit here and listen to, but we would go throughout the week reflecting and remembering what you have done to save your people, what you've done for us in Jesus Christ and bringing us salvation, not a work of ourselves, but a work of what you have done, something that you have planned before the foundations of the world for your people whom you love. We love you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So starting out, verse 1 is just telling us what the song is. So, so we'll more jump into verse 2. Starting the song, they sing that the leaders took lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. They're praising God as the one working. Yes, you know, he brought them victory in the battle, but they're even praising him for working through people and bringing them out into the fight. And this has two interesting implications for us as followers of Christ now. One, prayer. Dana mentioned pre-service prayer, and prayer is something that we must be doing, but at the same time, it is so hard for us as Westerners. For people that have been raised in a very secular and pragmatic society, I get it. 
I didn't become a Christian until around my sophomore year of college, until I was in my 20s. And so to, to, to pray doesn't seem very practical, but here they are blessing and praising God for even working in people to bring them in. So we need to be about the work of prayer. If you're able to come to the 915, I highly encourage you to show up in prayer because me, Rick, Wally, anybody here will be able to do absolutely nothing in bringing the kingdom of, of God and the peace of God to Lane County through our own efforts. It's, it's impossible. Just like the Israelites that were facing a foe far greater than themselves and could not have won the battle had not God intervened, there's nothing we can do apart from the power of God. That's one implication. The second one from this verse, she's praising and blessing God for the people that showed up for battle. This could be an interesting question for whoever's maybe making notes for the gospel community guides and an excellent question for us to ask as we meet throughout the week and dive deeper into the text. Are others blessing God for your work in the church? Are other people praising God for your service to one another and to God? I can tell you as somebody who leads a gospel community group in, uh, in Springfield on Thursday nights, by the way, you're, you're welcome to come check out a group if you'd like to, um, but I can tell you, I am thankful for every single person that comes and shows up on Thursday night to meet because I haven't figured everything out and I don't know everything perfectly and understand God's wisdom perfectly. And I need other believers to correct me, to share their insights, to be a part of the body, lifting one another up and pointing others to God and pointing others to the gospel. Because even myself, like everyone, we're quick to drift away from the truths of the gospel and off into so many other things. And I need other believers in my life to point me back to what Christ has done. And, and if, we're, if we're looking to be like Jesus, if we're looking to follow the commands of Scripture like John, 1 John 2.6, where he says, whoever abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked, we should walk in the same service with which Jesus walked. Uh, Paul says, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. John even or Jesus even told his disciples after washing their feet, do this as I have done for you. Look at my service, emulate me in my service. So God, people should be praising God as they're doing here. Service to the Lord, service to the church, and service to one another is the mark of a true believer. You know a tree by its fruits. I know nothing about trees, absolutely nothing. I'm not a dendrologist, person who studies trees. I had to look that up. Know nothing about trees. However, last year around, I think it was August, I was out walking with my kids and I spotted a tree and I knew it was a plum tree. Someone who knows absolutely nothing about tree, how do you think I knew it was a plum tree? It had, it had plums. We picked them off and I shared them with some of the kids. That's the only way I knew that it was a plum tree. And in the same way, how do you know somebody is following Christ? Well, they would demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit. They would demonstrate the same service with which Jesus came and served us. Jesus says again in John 13, by all this people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So we, we definitely point to Christ through our conduct, yes, but we also have a message to the world. And look at verse three. It's not just about what, what God's people have done God working through them, but it's also telling people to listen to what God has done. Verse three, hero kings, give hero princes to the Lord. I will sing, I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. To those who are mighty, to those who are in all positions of authority, listen to the one who is actually worthy of all praise and honor, who has all power. This song is a response to what God has done. 
And this is why we sing songs in response. When we come in, in the worship service, if you're curious why we're singing songs, we're reflecting on what God has done. And this will have, we'll speak more on this later, but this is especially important in our forgetfulness. So we sing praises. We tell others about his gratefulness. Lord, uh, verse four and five tells about what God done in the work when they went out to battle. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled, the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. When the ground becomes unsteady, when the sky is falling, when what once was stable becomes unstable, it can be very scary. In our lives, we experience different things like this that shake us to our core. These are literal things that are happening. But this is a song of praise. Why are they not fearful? I mean, they're, they're kind of cheering and praising God for this calamity that is happening. If you look at Psalm 46, I think there, there's some special insight into this. In verse 2 of Psalm 46, it says, Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. But why? Why will they not fear? Well, look at verse 1. In Psalm 46, it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The Canaanites weren't going to God for refuge. The reason why the Israelites had peace amongst the chaos was because God was their refuge. They knew God was on their side. For them, it, for the Canaanites, there is much to be feared because they're not looking to God for their hope. They're not looking to God to be saved and looking to him for salvation but instead they're trusting in themselves and the strength of their own chariots to give them the people of Israel and win the battle. And that doesn't go well for them. It talks about the heavens dropped and the clouds dropped water. This is significant for many reasons. A fun little side note and a tip of the hat to God's creativity, his wisdom and his power. The dictionary of deities and demons in the Bible explains how Ugaritic records show that Baal, the God that the Canaanites worshiped, was supposed to be a weather god in charge of the rain and the thunder and the storms. As Rick said last week, they went in with chariots, but they were bogged down in the mud. This is a double-edged blow from God, mocking the Canaanites and all their strength in the chariots, but also mocking their gods to show where is their power. In verses 6 through 9, we see the kind of trouble that the Israelites were in, what was going on during this time before they even went out to battle. Verse six says, in the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Again, Deborah is praising God for the people who showed up and worked together to bring salvation to the people. In these verses, we have trouble in verse 6. We have faithlessness in verse 7 and at the beginning of 8 when they're choosing other gods and they begin to worship other things. We have weakness. We, we have faithlessness. And then we have weakness as well at the end of verse 8. Nobody is willing to take up shield or sword to defend the cause of one another. Rick talked about remembering last week and forgetting. And in many ways, the, the book of Judges is a story of forgetfulness. 
It's a story of the Israelites forgetting who God is, forgetting what he's done, and forgetting who they now are because of what he's done. And this is the tragic story that many of us here face. When times are good, we forget about God. When times are difficult, we run to him, we pray to him, we seek him. When God's law is forsaken, when his word is forsaken, his way of living is forsaken, we dive off into our own way, we find ourselves in all kinds of trouble, as the Israelites did. The world became a very dangerous place when people no longer looked to God's way of living as a standard. In verse 10, again, they're calling people to remember what God has done. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys. Tell you who sit on rich carpets and you who walk by the way. To the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. If we remember, Rick said these weren't soldiers. These were just villagers that came out to fight for the Israelites. But this verse is telling uh, those who ride on white donkeys and sit on rich carpets, these are wealthy people. These are rich people. These are rulers. And they're telling them, it doesn't matter who you are. You need to remember and recognize God and what he's done. It says walking by the way. It seems like there may even be a, a sense of peace already shortly after the battle. In verse 6, it says people had to walk by the byways. Already it seems that God has ushered in some measure of peace. And we even see this at the end in verse 31 where they were given 40 years of peace. We'll continue. It says musicians in verse 11. By now, we should understand the significance of the musicians and, and even this, hey, retell this story. Tell it again. Tell what people have done over and over again. We're not that far into the book of Judges, verse uh, chapter 5, and we have many more to go. But we continually see, this is the cycle that Becca talked about in the video that just happens over and over and over again, constantly forgetting what God has done. And this is us. This is what we do too. This is why every Sunday we come and reflect on the gospel. We look at what God's word has, has to say and how the gospel informs us as we read throughout all of scripture, why we sing songs of praise. And I would even encourage you, especially with the book of Judges, to be reading God's word throughout the week, Ref reading what he's done, because we quickly forget. Our hearts are so fickle. What's nice is we live in the, uh, the 21st century, and there's all different kinds of interesting means to listen to uh, God's word. We're constantly forgetting, and this is why they need this remembrance. Even in the song they're singing, praising and reflecting on God, they're like, you know, in the song itself, they're saying, remember, don't forget what he's done again, or you will find yourself in the same awful position. Now, in verse 12 and 18, we move through a section where it's focusing on the courageous and the cowards. That is when, when the people of Israelites need help, verses 12 through 18 tells us who was faithful and who was not. Verse 12, awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in a song. This would sound so much better if I was singing it in Hebrew. I joked, I joked with Rick about doing that. Um, it, this is a song, so it's very repetitive. It may sound weird to our ears to hear it, but it, it repeats different phrases over and over again. It's that Hebrew poetry coming through. So awake, awake, Deborah, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then marched the remnant of the noble, the people of the Lord, marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kingsmen. It's praising the courageous people who came out and fought. From Makir marched down the commanders. And from Zebulun, those who were the lieutenant staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley, they rushed at his heels. Now it moves into those unfaithful clans. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds? To hear the whistling of the flocks? 
Among the clans of Reuben, there were great surgeons of heart. It repeats it twice there, that Hebrew poetry, emphasizing the clan of Reuben and their failure to step up and have courage for their people. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, verse 17. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. And then in verse 18, it ends, speaking of Zebulun again, another faithful tribe in Naphtali. Zebulun is a people who risk their lives to the death, Naphtali too on the heights of the field. It says here that amongst some of this, these tribes, there was no heart. They had no heart to come out. Some of these people were so concerned with protecting their investments, they wouldn't even get involved in the battle for their own freedom and for the sake of their brothers and sisters. We as well can sometimes be so attached to the things of this world, we don't fight for the one to come. We don't fight sin, we don't strive for holiness, and we don't seek to bring the peace of God here now, and many people suffer because of it. Many go without hearing the gospel because of it. But for the ones who did go to battle, look at what happened. 19 through 23 is a retelling of the story. The kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan. At Tanakh, by the waters of Megiddo, they got no spoils of silver. The, the spoils of silver, this is what the Canaanites were hoping to acquire. They were, they were looking for more possessions. From heaven, the stars fought from their courses. They fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. Then loud beat the horse's hoofs with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Verse 23 is important. Curse Meraz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. So in verse 19, we see the Canaanites, their greed was not satiated. More on this later. In verse 21, we see God working to bring his people victory, all the while mocking the Canaanites and their power and their God. I mentioned this earlier. Now, verse 23 is interesting. Merez is interesting because it is so briefly mentioned. And what are they cursed for? Look at verse 23. Because they did not come to the help of the Lord. The sin of Merez was the sin of apathy. Not caring, not being concerned about the plight of others. Jeremiah 17.5 says, Cursed the man who turns, whose heart turns away from the Lord. The truth is, God doesn't need you to accomplish his mission. He doesn't need you. But does that mean that you don't Go. Look at Maris. They were cursed for their apathy. And what does the curse of God look like? If you look at Galatians 3.13, Deuteronomy 28.20, or even Genesis 3, we see that the curse of God is death. It's separation from God. It's casting out from his presence. It is death. And you want to talk about death and being forgotten, do me a favor today. After the sermon sometime, when you get a chance to go home, go home, get on the internet, and research, up, research Maris, and tell me all that you can about the people of Merez. You know what's left of Merez? This verse. This is it. Do a Google search. You will find nothing. This was an entire group of people. How much less will be left of you when you neglect God's call in your life to serve others in the work that God is doing? They were completely erased from human history. We have nothing more than a verse in the Bible about these people. Revelation 3.16, when Jesus is rebuking many of the churches, he says to one church in particular, so because you are lukewarm, 
and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. A very harsh rebuke from God about the sin of apathy. It's funny we go from Meraz, 1 verse in 23, to now verses 24 through 27, looking at Jael. 24, most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. Of ten dwelling women, most blessed. He asked for water, she gave him milk. She brought him curds and a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg, and I, you know, I didn't mention this again at the beginning of the sermon. It doesn't look like there's too many little kids in here, but um, Judges is a very violent book, FYI. Uh, earmuffs if you need to, but she sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple between her feet. He sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet, he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. It's funny, we go from the one verse about Merez to these of Jael. How much do we hear about Jael? There's four verses in chapter five, six back in chapter four, and I would say about an eighth of this song is dedicated to this woman who struck Sisera and killed him. By all rights, though, if you look and read through Judges, I mean, she doesn't even look like she was supposed to be part of the story. She just kind of shows up in Judges 4.17. Honestly, if I was Heber, I would be a little afraid to go to sleep with my wife in the room, uh, Heber the Kenite. This is one relationship where you do not want the sun to go down on your anger. We're not going to bed until we figure this out. What did I do to make you mad? That's when you, when you tell her like, hey, I have a gift for you tomorrow. It's a surprise. Just so that she doesn't kill you in your sleep. She'll be interested in seeing it. These verses are so tricky, by the way. When it comes to application, what's nice is that we have over 2,000 years of collective church history. I don't have to come up with my own application every single time just reading the text. Certainly, there's, there's a measure with which the Holy Spirit will help us in our reading to understand how this applies to our own lives. But we also have much wisdom throughout church history where we can look and see what other people have said. What's funny about this is when I was looking for applications for these verses about jail, I don't know what to say. Uh, some of these applications I saw were like, I, I'm worried about saying, because it's like, act on the opportunities God puts in front of you. Use the tools you've been given. Some things are more important than following rules. I'm worried about somebody in our congregation ending up on the news and saying, well, Pastor Ronnie, uh, pointing to JL, and so this, I had an opportunity to strike down this tyrant, and I'm like, now the FBI is asking me questions about what kind of church we have, and yeah. Here's what I would say as far as application. I'll just say this, God opposes the proud. This is what James says in 4.6. Cicero was running away in fear and killed in his sleep by a woman while hiding in her tent like a coward. Not very glorious. Cicero and the Canaanites were very prideful and thought they would get away for their sin forever. Keep reading. This was not the case. Look at verses 28 through 30. Out of the window she peered, the mother of Cicero, wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found that divided the spoil, a womb or two for every man? Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoil of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck is spoil. These verses speak to the greed and the lust of the Canaanites. When it talks about a womb or two for every man, this speaks to the intentions of the Canaanite in taking over the Israelites and what they plan to do with their women. I hope you understand what I mean by that. Some people think that the party never stops, that we can just keep sinning and keep living contrary to God's nature and we will continue 
living forever. We abuse his grace in prolonging our days until one day the sun doesn't come up. Look at verse 31, and we'll close with this. It says, so, all, so may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might and the land had rest for 40 years. This song closes by declaring boldly a desire to see a similar fate fall upon all of God's enemies. Whatever we are in this life and the life to come, we know this is of greater importance than anything else. Greater than your hobbies, greater than your favorite team, greater than that job you want or any promotion you can earn in the future, greater than your wife, your family, even your own life, is this question. Are you an enemy of God? This is what Paul says about us in Romans. In, in, in Romans 3, he tells us we've all sinned. We've all fallen short. So in a sense, we've all cursed God to his face. He's given us a way of living, and we said we want to do it our own way. We've all done this. We're all guilty, myself included, everybody. In chapter 5, he says we're weak, not answering the call to serve others, as many of the Israelites did. We're sinners, chasing the lust of our desires. Our greed, our appetite is never satiated like the Canaanites who wanted more stuff and more sexual pleasure. We're enemies of God, cursing him and worshiping so many other things like the Canaanites and unfortunately the Israelites who had walked away and began worshiping other things. Who are you in this story? In Genesis 4 through 5, 4 and 5, who are you? I'm sure many of us would like to think we're Deborah or Jael. Faithful, courageous, taking up the opportunities God has given us and doing many things. But if we're being honest, we're not that cool. Maybe we're Barak, or at least one of the faithful people that went out and fought the battle for God who risked their lives. We'd, we'd like to say that we would be willing to risk our lives for the cause of Christ. But the truth is, many of us are more akin to the inhabitants of Meres and even the Canaanites and Sisera himself. Apathetic, greedy, lustful, idolatrous, running from the presence of God, hiding in shame, as Sisera did, in a tent, or even a church building, hoping to escape the wrath of God. One day, the same shame that came upon Sisera may hit you, maybe even in your sleep while your guard is down. Look at the Canaanites. Defeat came to them like a thief of the night, as the day of the Lord will come for us, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.2. What did the Canaanites expect? Read the verses again. What were they looking forward to? Joy? spoils, glory from victory? What will await us on the other side of death? Is our confidence like the Canaanites? Is it misplaced? Well, that depends. What is your confidence in? Look back at this song. Who won the battle for the Israelites? I left off part of Jeremiah 17.5 from earlier, but let's, let's close with its significance. It says, curses the man whose heart turns away from the Lord, but it also says this, Cursed is the man who trusts in man. When the foundations of the earth trembled, when the world seemed like it was falling around the Israelites, they were able to rest and have peace because their confidence and their hope was in God, not themselves. They weren't like the Canaanites looking to their own power, but they were looking to God to bring them glory. And we do the same thing now as Christians. We don't look to our own efforts, our own good, good works. I mentioned serving in the church and helping lift one another up and, and love one another, but this isn't the, the means by which we come into salvation. To look to those things would be just like the Canaanites to look to our own strength and our own ability, and we will ultimately find ourselves lacking. But if we look to God and what he has done in the cross, 
through Jesus Christ who perfectly did all those things for us, then our hope will not be misplaced and we will find salvation and victory with Christ. Those who trust in God for deliverance will see themselves delivered, but those who presume glory because of what they've done will be humbled and brought low just as Cicero was. Yes, we're weak. Paul says we're weak. We're sinners. We're enemies. But he also says in five, while we were all those things, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to clean up our act. He didn't look to us to do anything special. While we were all of those things, he went to the cross knowing exactly who we are, knowing all of your sin. Nothing was covered from him. He knew it all. And he still went willingly for all of the shameful things you've done. No matter what it is, you cannot out the grace of God. He still went for you, even in your weakness. Also that we could be called his friends and rise like the sun, partaking in his glory, experiencing deliverance, and entering into his eternal rest. Amen? Let's pray. God, let us look to you for salvation, for hope, for deliverance. Let us not foolishly think that somehow we can merit up enough good works or or enough power or glory to impress you. But look to what you have done, praise you, remember this, reflect on it, and not be so quick to forget what you've done for us and the goodness you've shown us. In all the brokenness of which we were, you came and entered into that and rescued us. Thank you, God, for all you've done. Amen.